beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, how are we to worship God? What constitute the type of worship that pleases God? This is something that has divided Christianity in recent times. Some churches have seen a decline in their membership, so they wonder what they're doing wrong. They see many of their younger members leaving the church or going elsewhere. They think we have to do something to retain our young people. And so they change the manner in which they worship. They try to transform what is considered to be an old-fashioned, boring, traditional service into something fresh and contemporary. The result is that churches begin to experience worship wars. Have you ever heard of the worship wars? They happen when different ideas about worship clash. Some want to do away with what they call the one-man show. They want more participation by more people in the worship services, perhaps by appointing readers to read the Bible passages, or by making the congregation more involved in the liturgy through a communal confession of sins or a responsive amen. Others desire a change in the singing. They want to sing less of the traditional psalms and hymns and to introduce contemporary music to the worship service. Instead of being accompanied by an organ or piano, they want the singing to be led by a band. They want worship leaders who can hype up the crowd by getting worshipers to stand and to clap and to sing and dance. Others want to change in the manner in which the gospel is brought. Instead of long, boring sermons, they want short, crisp messages. They want to hear members come up and give personal testimonies of how God is working in their lives. They want to see smooth and slick video presentations that engage and entertain. Once worship, store, once worship wars start in a church, it's really difficult to maintain unity. Some people are traditionalists. They want to worship in a way that they've grown up worshiping. They're not open to any changes. Others are more progressive and want worship to be more engaging. And no matter what kind of decisions the church leadership makes, they're bound to upset some people. Those people may agitate for a while to get what they want, and if their desires are not met, they'll often vote with their feet. They'll even go to a church that caters to their preferred style of worship. All of this raises a question. Is there a right way to worship God? What kind of worship actually pleases the Lord? How can we best give glory to his holy name? To answer these questions, we turn to the second commandment. While the first commandment teaches us who we are to worship, the second focuses on how we are to worship. The focus of the first commandment is on worshiping the Lord God alone. The focus of the second commandment is that we are to worship him according to what he has commanded in his word. This afternoon we're going to examine how we can show forth our thankfulness to God for Christ's redeeming work. 
will consider the need to worship God in spirit and in truth. I preach you the Word of God under the following theme, worship the Lord as He desires. We'll consider the Lord's warning against self-willed worship and the Lord's call to worship Him according to His Word. So what is worship? The word worship is an English word derived from the word worth, with the suffix ship added to it. To worship means to ascribe worth to someone. In a Christian context, we apply this to God. In our worship, we ascribe great worth to God. The the purpose of our worship service is to direct our hearts to God and all His mighty works so that we would praise and glorify Him. It's so that we might give Him the glory due to His majestic name. But why should our worship focus on glorifying God? We can give a number of reasons for why God is worthy of all praise and adoration. The first is because He is the creator of this world, the one who not only made us, but who holds our lives in His hands. A second reason for worshiping God is because of His redemptive work. Israel was to worship the Lord because He delivered them from slavery in Egypt. We worship God to thank and praise Him for His redeeming work in Jesus Christ, for saving us from our sins and setting us free from the power of the devil. Finally, we worship God for His ongoing, renewing work in our lives, for granting us new life through the Spirit, for working daily renewal in our lives. Because of the importance of worship, the Bible speaks about it in hundreds of different passages. Genesis 4.26 tells us that already very early in the history of the world, people began to call on the name of the Lord. Later in Genesis, we see how the Lord established his covenant with the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It speaks of them constructing altars and presenting sacrifices to the Lord. In Exodus 15, the Israelites praised and worshipped the Lord for delivering them from Egypt and for drowning Pharaoh and his armies in the Red Sea. God's people worshipped the Lord at Mount Sinai, at the tabernacle, in the temple, and at the dedication of the rebuilt walls of Jerusalem after the exile. These passages make it clear that the Lord not only wants His people to worship Him, but that He wants them to worship Him in the right manner. At Mount Sinai, while Moses was on the mountain receiving God's commandments, the people badgered Aaron into making them a golden calf. The leaders pointed at the golden calf and said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. They had the right intention to worship the Lord God, but the manner in which they tried to worship him was wrong, for they tried to serve him through an idol. If we look at the Old Covenant, we see that the Lord gave His people exhaustive instructions about how to worship Him. Exodus 25-40 to records all the instructions God gave about how the tabernacle and its furnishings were to be made. In Exodus 25, verse 9, the Lord says, 
exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle and all of its furnish and all of its furniture, so you shall make it. Hebrews 8 verse 5 explains why God gave such specific instructions about how he was to be worshipped. It was because the tabernacle served as a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. The Lord specified how Israel was to worship him so that their service on earth would reflect the worship offered to God in heaven. In the first seven chapters of Leviticus, we see how the Lord gave detailed instructions for how various offerings were to be presented to him. Specific instructions are given about what and how to present a burnt offering, a grain offering, a peace offering, a sin offering, and a guilt offering. Leviticus 8 speaks about the ordination of Aaron and his sons as priests, and chapter 9 about the first tabernacle service. Aaron offered all the prescribed offerings, and then he and Moses went into the tent of meeting. When they came out, they blessed the people. Then the glory of the Lord appeared to all the people. Fire came out from before him and consumed the burnt offering on the altar. When the people saw it, they shouted their praises and fell down on their faces, worshiping God. Here we have a high point in the history of God's dealings with his people. The Lord God personally appeared to them. He showed them his glory. The sending of fire on the altar was a symbol of how he accepted the people's sacrifices, how he was well pleased with their worship. Because Israel had constructed the tabernacle in accordance with the Lord's directions and offered their sacrifices in a manner specified by God, the Lord was willing and able to come and dwell among his people. Or they could enjoy covenant fellowship together on their way to the promised land. But then something tragic happens. Our reading from Leviticus 10 speaks about Nadab and Abihu, two of Aaron's sons. Earlier they had accompanied Moses and Aaron up Mount Sinai. Along with their father Aaron and their brothers Eleazar and Ithamar, they had just been ordained as priests. They took their censers and they put fire in them and laid incense on it and offered unauthorized fire before the Lord. Leviticus 10 verse 1 specifies that this was not what the Lord God had commanded them. Just as fire came out earlier to burn up the burnt offering, so fire came out from before the Lord and consumed them, and they died. So what did Nadab and Abihu do wrong? When incense was offered, it was produced by putting some burning lumps of charcoal in a metal container and vaporizing a mixture of aromatic spices on this fire. Some suggest that perhaps Nadab and Abihu took the coals from a place other than the altar. Others suggest that they offered incense at the wrong time. While we don't fully understand exactly what they did wrong, the Bible says that what they did was unauthorized. Somehow these two priests violated God's holiness by deviating from the divinely prescribed form of worship. It's clear from what the Lord said to Aaron in Leviticus 10 verse 3. He said, Among those who are near to me, I will be sanctified. And before all the people, I will be glorified. 
What the Lord makes clear is that he is a holy God. Holiness is part of God's divine character. Again and again, the Bible refers to God as the Holy One of Israel. In heaven, the angels and the four living creatures before the throne of God never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The psalmist commands us to worship God in the beauty of his holiness. God's holiness is what sets him apart. He is utterly and completely without sin. He cannot stand sin. He abhors it. God's holiness is what gives him beauty. It makes God attractive and lovely to those who love him. Our worship services should aim to enable all who worship to make sense of the holiness of God as much as they can. Some churches today stress the need to make everyone feel welcome. They promote a laid-back, comfortable atmosphere. It is very important for us to welcome those from the outside who seek to come to know the Lord. Yet worship must be conducted in a way to promote reverent fear of God in the worshipers. The last part of Hebrews 12 speaks about the glory of coming to God in worship. It ends with a warning. Let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. For our God is a consuming fire. It appears that in offering unauthorized worship before the Lord, Nadab and Abihu did something that robbed God of his glory. The Lord's words in Leviticus 10 verse 3 suggest this. He spoke about how he would be glorified before all the people. Earlier when Moses and Aaron had come out of the tabernacle, the glory of the Lord appeared to all the people. It seems like Nadab and Abihu wanted to offer incense so that when they came out from God's presence, they too might have God's glory radiating around them. But that would be taking advantage of God's glory to attain glory for themselves. This teaches us a central principle about worship. Worship is all about praising and glorifying God. He needs to stand in the center. God alone should receive all the glory. Anything in worship that takes away from the glory of God is sinful. Please understand, beloved, that a worship service is not a performance. If a minister preaches to draw attention to himself, he robs God of his glory. If an accompanist plays in such a way to draw attention, he or she diverts the congregation from singing glory to God. While those who lead us in worship need to use their gifts and talents to the best of their abilities, they're to do this for God's glory and not their own. Worship is primarily about God. It's not about us. It's about God being glorified and praised for his wondrous works. It's not about us being entertained. In many churches today, the focus is on pleasing people. Many contemporary churches today, the pulpit has been replaced with a stage 
and with people holding microphones. Just as a crowd is worked up at a rock concert, so worship leaders will stir up people's emotions through music and singing, clapping and dancing. What's supposed to be a worship service becomes a performance. In such services, little attention is given to the preaching of the gospel. If there is a message, it's focused on meeting perceived needs. Most often, the Bible is not opened or read. There's no clear explanation given about a particular text. Worship leaders will spend a lot of time talking about God's love. Yet they rarely explain why we need God's love. It's not cool to talk about sin and about our need for repentance. The result is that most often the good news of salvation in Christ is not preached. Instead, hearers get some humanistic message about how to improve their self-image or how to better their lives. As Canadian Reformed Churches, we are facing some challenges in our worship of God. To a certain extent, we are under pressure from how churches in our communities worship God. Why, you ask? Because some of our members attend these churches and they like what they experience. They want to change certain things in how we worship God. Beloved, we should always be open for improvements in worship. Yet we need to remember, worship's about God, not about us. Worship's all about praising and glorifying God. It's not about pleasing us. This brings us to our second point, and we'll consider the Lord's call to worship Him according to His Word. In the second commandment, the Lord forbids making any kind of idol or image by which we might seek to represent Him. Now, God is not opposed to art. We're allowed to draw pictures, to paint, and to sculpture. Throughout history, people have used their gifts and talents to produce beautiful representations of how they saw the world. Many artists have used their talents to glorify God. The point of the second commandment is that we're not allowed to make images in order to worship them or to serve God through them. In the time of the Great Reformation, the Reformers took issue with how God was worshipped in the Roman Catholic Church. I don't know how many of you have ever walked through any of the great cathedrals built by the Roman Church. The architecture is impressive. The workmanship is often of the highest quality. In Guelph, Ontario, I've walked through the Church of Our Lady, which was completed in 1846. It's simply a stunning building. Yet walking inside this church made me sad. It's filled with statues of the saints and with crucifixes Crosses with Jesus hanging on them. The artwork and the stained glass windows depict different scenes from Scripture. There's large paintings depicting the stations of the cross, summarizing the pathway of suffering that Jesus walked all the way to the cross. 
The point behind all these images is that they're intended to teach the congregants about the Bible and about God. Now, Catholics are sensitive to the charges the Reformed have made against them, that they break the second commandment by worshiping images. They try to make a distinction between worshiping God and venerating the saints. Yet we should look at what they do instead of at what they say. They bow down before the images. They worship at the altar. They pray to the saints. Further, their service is focused on the Mass. The emphasis on worshiping the body of Christ as represented by a piece of bread. Most Catholic churches give little time and attention to the preaching of the gospel. Our catechism addresses these issues directly. It says that God forbids us to make or have any images in order to worship them or to serve God through them. It addresses the question of whether or not we ought to have images in the churches in order that the people might be taught by them. Our catechism says no, for we should not be wiser than God. He does not want his people to be taught by means of dumb images, but by the living preaching of his word. It's for this reason that Reformed church buildings are not filled with pictures and images. God cannot be captured by any kind of image. He is invisible. No one has ever seen him. The Bible teaches us about God in words. And so God wants his people to learn to know him and his wondrous works through the preaching of the gospel. You see, beloved, on this side of heaven, faith comes by hearing and not by seeing. Our reading from Leviticus 10 states a general principle for worship. It speaks of how Nadab and Abihu offered unauthorized fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. They did something which God had not commanded them. Our catechism comes back to this. It asks, what does God require in the second commandment? The answer is we're not to make an image of God in any way, nor to worship him in any other manner than he is commanded in his word. You see, we're not free to worship God however we like. We're to worship Him in the manner commanded in His Word. In Leviticus 10, we see this principle applied to Aaron and his surviving sons. As priests, they had been consecrated for the worship of God. While serving in the tabernacle, there were certain things that they were not allowed to do. They were not allowed to touch a dead human body for that would defile them. They were not allowed to mourn in the traditional manner by tearing their clothes and putting ashes on their heads. On their own time, they'd be allowed to do such things, but not while they were ministering as priests, serving as mediators between God and His people. That would have been very difficult for Aaron and his sons Eliezer and Ithamar. Their sons and brothers had just been struck down by fire from the Lord. Their dead bodies were lying in front of the sanctuary. But they were not allowed to take them away for burial 
or mourn over them. First, they had to complete their tasks in leading Israel in worship of God. God's glory and Israel's fellowship with the Lord were more important than their grief. They were required to serve the Lord as he had commanded in his word. As a general principle, our worship needs to be conducted in a manner that God has commanded in his word. If we look at how faithful Christian churches worship God, we'll see that their worship services are different all over the world. Different cultures influence how churches worship in different parts of the world. We sing different songs to different tunes. Some don't use any musical accompaniment. Some use organs and pianos. Some use different musical instruments. The gospel is preached in a manner that speaks to those who are listening. That's different in a mission setting than in an intergenerational church. Yet despite all the variety, these worship services all have a basic consistency. The Christian liturgy has developed from the Jewish synagogue service. Where God is worshipped faithfully, the liturgy will have the same basic elements. Prayer, singing, reading and preaching of the word, and a blessing from God at the end of the service. You see, beloved, in our services, we sing the word, we pray the word, we read the word, we preach the word, we see the word administered in the sacraments. The word of God must stand central in any service where God is worshipped in spirit and truth. You know why that is, beloved? Because the word of God comes from him. And because it's all about him. The word of God teaches us about Christ, who is the word who came forth in human flesh. Jesus Christ came into this world to serve God in precisely the manner God commanded him. He came to do the will of his Father in heaven. Even though that meant drinking the cup of suffering and dying on a cross. Christ did that to restore us to a right relationship with God. He has blessed us with his spirit so that we're able to worship him in the manner that he has taught us in his word. For it's when we worship God in spirit and truth that he's praised and glorified by us. Beloved, let us never get involved in the worship wars. If there are improvements to be made in how we worship, then let them be based on what God teaches us in his word. Let's remember, worship's not about us. It's about giving praise and glory to God for his wondrous work of creating, redeeming, and renewing us. God needs to stand at the center of our worship. When he does, then we will join our praise and adoration to the glory God is receiving in heaven. Then God receives the praise due to his most holy name. Amen.
Let's respond to the gospel message by rising and singing from Psalm 96, stanzas 4, 5, and 8.